We better open up with prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your love this morning. And Father, we do thank you that uh, in, our in our lives there are times of quiet, and in those times you move. And although we wonder if you're at work as we sit and watch from our side, um, we know from Scripture that your hand and you are at work uh, where we don't see you, and that you make a way and a path forward, and, and you are the one that opens the doors, and we trust in you, uh, Father, that you'll guide and direct. So we thank you for directing the bands. We thank you that they could come here this morning. Father, we thank you for directing Jan, for directing Lita, and uh, in their lives. And we pray that as each of them move into a different phase, uh, that you'll just continue to encourage them and bless them. And Father, as we turn to your word this morning, help, uh, help in our minds to move the distractions aside. Uh, the busyness of the week can get in the way. And Father, the anticipation of the week to come. So help us this morning to concentrate on your word uh, that our minds might interact with Scripture, uh, that your Spirit might convict and move in our hearts to make us more into the image of Jesus Christ. We pray this in your Son's precious name. Amen. So whenever you do public speaking, one of the first things that they teach you is you need to hook people in. So you need some sort of story or a, a big statistic um, maybe a little movie clip or something, uh, because you want to engage your audience right away. That, by the way, that was my hook. Um, and one of the things when we look at the Sermon on the Mount is that some people might rate Jesus high and how he got people involved with the beginning of the Beatitudes, while others might just kind of scratch their heads and go, Huh? That's how you're trying to hook your audience, Lord? Because you've got to remember his audience. These are, are mainly Jewish people that he's talking to at this time. And as he talks to them, he opens up with these three statements. Blessed or happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit, inherit the earth. I'd say that's batting three for three and, and, and maybe not home runs out of the park. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. And happy are the meek. Well, we've discussed the first two. And the third isn't much better if you're sitting in the audience listening. Blessed are the meek. That was not the kind of rabbi they were expecting. That was not the Messiah they were looking for. That was, that's not a leader. Who wants a, a meek leader? That was not what Israel expected, nor what they wanted. The nation was expecting a, a, a Messiah, one that would deal with them gently, but deal with the Romans harshly. See, they had been under Roman rule for nearly 100 years. Prior to that, they had this little short period where they managed to overthrow the Grecian Empire, uh, who had ruled them for years and years before that period. So that short freedom was that, short. Short-lived before they found themselves under another oppressor. And, and the Messiah they were waiting for 
they thought would come in power and might and overthrow those uh, oppressors. And, And meekness just doesn't equate to that type of leadership. The religious leaders expected Christ to come with some miracles and sort of overturn and loosen the Roman grip from them. The zealots, well, they expected someone to come in might. They fully expected somebody who would lead the nation, a powerful military leader, to go before them in battle. But, but that's not what they got. And exactly how they missed this mark, I'm not sure. Because when you look back into Isaiah, where it talks about the Messiah, that's not what we see. Isaiah 53, 2 through 5. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look up at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. And he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and esteemed, and, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, and he carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. When thinking of freedom, this is hardly the modern aspiration of a leader. How does meekness fit into this? Well, let's begin by by first looking at the word meek itself. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines it this way. First, an enduring, enduring injury with patience and without resentment. The example they give is a meek child dominated by his big brother's. Second, they say, deficient in spirit and courage, submissive. The, I don't care, came the meek reply. I don't care what we do tonight. Third, they say, not violent or strong, moderate. The example they give is, his delivery varied from a meek, melodic, to, a melodic patter to rapid fire. See, sadly, our our modern uh, understanding of the word meek falls short of the biblical understanding. Aristotle was a Greek philosopher, and he spoke of virtues. And when he spoke of virtues in life, he always talked about it being the mean, the average. The difference between excess in a particular virtue versus deficiency of it. So, for example, courage. Courage is a virtue because it's between cowardness and the deficiency of courage would be foolhardiness, doing something that you'll regret. So foolhardiness relaxes in having too much courage to live reckless. Generosity was a virtue to him. Generosity is in between stinginess and shameless waste of one's resources. For Aristotle, meekness was a virtue because it was in between. It was in between an inability to show anger and excessive anger. He describes a meek man as follows. 
who is angry, the meek is one who is angry at the right occasion and at the right people and at the right moment and for the right length of time. In Hebrew, when we look at this word, it's translated meek comes from, and, and this depends on the context, poor, humble, lowly, weak, afflicted. New Testament scholars often translate the word meek as gentle or even humble. It's a a positive moral quality of dealing with people in a kind manner, with humility and consideration. The Greek word is also used to describe animals. So when an animal is sort of designated as being domesticated, that was because that animal had learned to accept the control of their human masters. Therefore, they behaved properly around people. Over time, it became used to describe those in the upper class of Greek society. A person who was well-mannered, balanced, polite, soft, lowly in behavior, as opposed to awkward and rude. Translated to the English society, this is where we get the word gentleman. So as we seek to understand verse 5 in Matthew, context is important. So let's look at the word meek as it's used in Scripture. And Matthew 5, 5 is actually a quote from Psalm 37. Psalm 37, verse 11, we read this, But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. I encourage you this week, to read the whole of Psalm 37. We're just going to touch on a little bit of this morning. So if you turn to Psalm 37 with me, we're going to look at a a few select verses. The psalm itself is considered a wisdom psalm. It's formatted in an alphabetical uh, acrostic. Um, And that's done to make it easy for people to memorize. It's important to remember that you'll find 22 stanzas because in the Hebrew alphabet there are 22 letters. And that's how the shape of this psalm is crafted. So, verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourselves in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in this way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil." For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. So here we get a comparison between the righteous and the unrighteous. And that's going to help clarify the point of this wisdom psalm for us. So in the first part, we get, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. 
Well, why not? Well, we're told they're going to fade. They're going to wither. They're going to go away. And it goes on, fret not yourself over the one who prospers, who carries out evil devices. Refrain from wrath or from anger and wrath. Fret yourself not. It tends only to evil. And we've got to remember the word fret here is a little bit different. We often think of just worry, but the definition of fret is, is that worry, but it's worry that's hot and furious and burns and it becomes angry. It, it can be kindled inside yourself. You become frustrated, annoyed. It's to heat oneself with vexation, exasperation, incensed and enraged. It's when you begin to dwell on something and you worry and it makes you upset and you're like, whoa, why, why did these people get away with this? Scripture tells us not to worry because that could lead to evil doing if we're fretting. And why shouldn't we worry? Because this person shall be cut off. So we're not to fret. Besides, flying off a handle is not a virtue. It goes on, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. So we're not to fret. We're not to get worried. We're not to get exasperated. We're not to be incensed about it. Look at, look at the righteous. How, what are the words used to describe the righteous here? Trust in the Lord. Do good. Be friend faithfulness. Delight in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. Wait patiently for him. And then in verse 9, But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In a here but not yet sense, the Israelites... They understood this. It was a reference to the promised land where they would find rest. There is a whole lot of eschatological baggage here, and it's good baggage. This concept was when they came out of the land of Egypt and they were going to go into the promised land, they were going in with who was king over them at that time. They went into the promised land. Who was king? God, right? So they were underneath a theocracy under God and they were going into the land and they were expecting to find rest. And through their disobedience, again and again, we see that they don't find rest. There's an eschatological sense that as they looked for the Messiah to come, as they looked to be lifted out of oppression, they were also looking for rest in the land. You and I, we look for rest too. Where do we look for rest? When it's all wrapped up and Christ comes again. That's where we look for our rest. One day, as the Israelites waited for rest, we wait for rest. And one day we will dwell with Christ in the new heavens, in the new earth, the new Jerusalem. And it's there that you and I will find our rest. Now look at down to verse 11 from uh, where Matthew quotes from in 5.5 or where Christ quotes from. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. So how is meek defined here? Meek's defined as the righteous. What did we learn? Well, we just went over it. A meek person trusts in the Lord. A meek person does good. A meek person is faithful. A meek person delights in the Lord. A meek person 
commits all that they do to God. A meek person waits patiently on the Lord. The remaining of Psalm 37 confirms our deductions. Look at verse 22. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed shall be cut off. And in verse 29, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the, you will look on when the wicked are cut off. So to be cut off of the land was a serious thing. To be removed from God's promise, all that was there. Remember, this was to be the land flowing with milk and honey. And in their disobedience here, David's recording, they will be cut off in a very real sense. I want to draw a parallel between what we read in Psalm 37 to Matthew 5 and in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. So in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, we read this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Remember the Beatitudes? We talked about them being progressive. They build upon one another. So in verse 3, it was, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Those who recognize they're spiritually bankrupt, blessed are those who mourn. Mourn for their sin, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek are part of those who inherit the earth, are part of those who inherit the kingdom of God. The meek are to be you and I, followers of Christ. Now, when you look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, it shouldn't be viewed as a complete list of those excluded from the kingdom. Rather, it's just a list used to show us a representation of any life lived contrary to God. The idea here, and it's a little difficult to explain, but in the original language, and I'm not a Greek expert, but in the original language, the concept and the idea here is we're not setting up a class of people. This is not a class of unrighteousness. The emphasis, though, is on the character of the person. They are unrighteous because of their behavior. They're unrighteous because of what they do. So there's a side note of truth that we need to learn here as we minister in our communities and as we minister to one another. When Paul writes, he doesn't address the unrighteous as a class, but he addresses them as people. He addresses them, the unrighteous, as those that are characterized or have characteristics displayed in their life that are contrary to God. So we need to keep this in mind when we deal with people that are trapped in sin. We're dealing with a person. It, it's too easy to lump people together and make categories and dismiss them that way. We can't just, oh, the unrighteous, and dismiss them. That's not what he's telling us here. They're people. I think the best illustration of this actually comes out of Ukraine. You know, I was watching something on, on the war in Ukraine, 
There was one small town, and, and drones have been used extensively. In one small town, they needed someone with a drone. They were being hit by this Russian tank column. And uh, a number of years before, a couple of years before on his birthday, this 15-year-old kid was given a drone, and he'd become an expert at flying it. So one night, him and his dad went out. They went out to the edge of town into a field, and he put the drone up, and he flew over around, and he found where the Russian column was. Finding the column, they took some pictures with the camera and the drone, sent it to the Ukrainian military, and they sent the coordinates back. At that point, the Russians' uh, column of tanks were very vulnerable, and what happened was the Ukrainian military took them all out. And they asked the kid, they said, hey, how do you feel about this? You know, you know what are your thoughts? And he felt you know what? He says, I, I'm glad I could save our town. I'm glad I could help the military out. Uh, it, it's nice to be thought of as a hero. But he paused for a second. He said, I have mixed feelings, though, too. See, Russian or not, there were still men in those tanks. And people died. People lost their lives. What maturity for a 15-year-old. Look again with me to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. I want you to catch this. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. So I added a verse this time, if you're paying attention. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such some of you, or were some of you, so Paul points the finger, and such were some of you. You were included in that list above at one time. But you were washed and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, you, the old self, my old self, would not have inherited the kingdom of God. The new you in Christ will. Why? Because we've been washed, redeemed by the cross. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection made it possible. Paul expands a little bit on this thought uh, in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, the Greek word for meek here, as often translated in the New Testament, is translated gentleness, um, which we talked about earlier. But in Ephesians 4, 2, he says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you, so you were once walking in that old way we talked about in 1 Corinthians, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and meekness or gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. See, once washed and delivered from our former lifestyle, our former former sinful lifestyle, we're urged to walk worthy. We're urged to walk in a matter where we live in humility, 
in gentleness or meekness, with patience, enduring. Remember, we talked about putting up with one another. And in love. All that is opposite to unrighteousness. That's how we're to live. And our example on how to live like this, to live that way, comes from Christ himself. In 2 Corinthians 10.1, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Christ is our example of what it means to live a meek and gentle life. Look at 1 Peter. I know we're jumping around a little bit, but 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 and 23. Here's what we read there. 1 Peter 2, 21 and 23. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. An example of meekness what do we see in the life of Christ? He was righteous. No sin was found him, in him. Jesus spoke the truth. He turned the other cheek. He didn't feel the need to defend himself. He trusted God. And here's the concept of that. Meekness is power under control. Jesus could have stopped this at any moment. But he saw the cross. He saw what was accomplished on the cross. He looked beyond his present-day circumstances, and he looked to the future, and he trusted and submitted himself by staying the course to the Father. I think D.A. Carson captures this well, part of this concept of meekness, when he says this. To be meek toward others implies freedom from malice and a vengeful spirit. Jesus best exemplifies it. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book, Sermon on the Mount, rightly applies meekness to our attitude towards others. We may acknowledge our own bankruptcy and mourn, but to respond with meekness when others tell us of our own bankruptcy is far harder. Meekness, therefore, requires such a true view about ourselves as we will express even in our attitude toward others. To say that concisely, there's no room for vengeance or self-righteousness. So in the Christian life, there is no room for vengeance, nor is there room for self-righteousness. But that begs the question. Is there ever a time to display anger in the Christian life? The answer may surprise some of you, but yes. There is. Jesus did. When Jesus cleansed and cleared the temple, his father's house, he displayed anger. William Barclay stated it, We are never to be angry for any insult or injury done to us. It is often right to be angry at injustices done to other people. Selfish anger is always sin. Selfless anger can be one of the greatest dynamics of the world. We're not to take vengeance, but there is a place for anger. 
When I listen, and I've been reading a lot with some of the churches in the States, and I, I've read a lot with what's happened here in Canada. When I see and listen to some of the abuses people have suffered at the hands of the church, of sexual abuse, of power abuse, of financial abuse, ego abuse, I must submit that that angers me. That angers me a lot. To see what is supposed to be so beautiful dragged through the mud to build someone else's ego or stoke their sexual pride. That anger, though, we should allow it to lead to action, not retaliation. See, it's possible to be angry, but yet be gentle. Reacting with meekness, that power under control. You can be gentle and still deal firmly with, with the issue. Is this anger wrong? I don't believe so. I don't believe it's sin. Because sin needs to be dealt with. Scripturally dealt with. And if there is some applicable reason to turn it over to the authorities, then it needs to be turned over to the authorities, even if it's found in the church. Because the authorities were established to punish the evildoers, not us. We let God's system, as he's designed it, take care of it. But we need to deal with the sin as the church. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. So we can be angry and we can deal with things gently. You and I are to seek the virtue of meekness and gentleness. For the meek, they shall inherit the earth. This is a promise not of riches and wealth in the present, but it's a promise of the future. That one day, you and I and all those who call Christ Lord one day we will rule with him. Joint heirs, living in the kingdom, in the new heaven, in the new earth, in the new Jerusalem. And there we will find our rest. And that will be fulfilled. So what is meekness? Well, meekness, it, meekness is a person that realizes they are spiritually bankrupt, in need of God, and they mourn over their sin. When, they, when we realize our sin before the Lord, our position before God, then it is truly easier to become humble. There we should learn humility, meekness and gentleness as part of our lives, a willingness to submit ourselves to God and to deal with others in a gentle manner. For without grace, the grace of God you and I, too, would be cut off from the kingdom. Deserving of judgment, we've been granted life. Meekness is a combination of so much. I can't help but wonder if Aristotle wasn't close when he implied it was a balance of a virtue, not too much of one thing and not too little of another. I want to conclude with one attribute that I think is closely related to meekness, it's one of the fruit of the Spirit. And I think if you're going to be meek, you need this fruit of the Spirit in your life and you need to cultivate it. And that is self-control. It takes self-control to respond gently. It takes self-control to learn to wait on the Lord. It takes self-control to submit to God and to let Him work on our behalf.
In Proverbs 25, 28, it states this, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. I think that sums it up well. So take the images that have been on our television screens over the last two or three years. Riots south of the border, riots here in Canada. Imagine the trash on the streets and the burnt-out buildings, the flipped-over. Imagine all of that. And now take that picture and apply those images in your mind to the life of a person without self-control. That is a person without meekness. The virtue is one of balance. And to gain balance in our lives, we need self-control. This isn't about platitudes. This is about learning to live in gentleness and to learning to submit ourselves to the Lord and learning to be kind and compassionate with one another. And what does Scripture tell us? Blessed or happy is the person who understands their position before God and lives that position amongst others. So blessed are the meek. We will be happy. And the meek, as righteous and as part of God's kingdom, will inherit that land, will inherit the rest to come when Messiah comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and Father, we thank you for the Beatitudes and these different traits that need to be in our lives. We're so grateful for your death on the cross. We're so grateful that you were willing to die for our sin and that when you look upon us, you see that that sin has been paid. Father, if there's anyone here this morning that has yet to come to faith in Jesus Christ, Father, may they understand that there is a God who cares for them, that they stand condemned to death, if not for coming to the Savior, Jesus Christ, and believing on him and trusting in him for their future. Father, help us to be meek. Help us to be gentle with one another. May that derive out of the fact that we understand we deserved so much and we're not given what we deserve, but given your grace and love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.